was my first time in Indian Creek. It was my turn to climb, but just before I was about to tie in, this free solo guy emerged out of nowhere. He seemed high on adrenaline and wanted another fix. He eyed our climb, fingers in a light socket, and after confirming that we didn't mind if he tried it, he climbed up, unroped. Indian Creek is a crazy place, I thought to myself as I watched the madman climb alongside my blue rope. He was solid for the first 40 feet, and then he started to look shaky. Oh my fucking god, am I about to watch a guy fall to his death during my first hour in Indian Creek? Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is episode six. We are continuing on with reading my 2016 memoir, American Climber. As I've said on previous podcasts, the number one way to support the Climbing Zine is to subscribe to us. And we also have a Patreon account if you would like to support just the podcast and you can do that for as little as a dollar a month and I'll leave that link in our show notes. This episode is brought to you by Sticker Art. StickerArt.com is where you can find these stickers and every sticker tells a story. These guys are based out of here in Durango, Colorado and if you use the coupon code DIRTBAG you can get 20% off. Without further delay, Dirtbags, climbers, or people that wish they were dirtbag climbers. Let's get into episode six. My close calls weren't limited to climbing. One day, while driving to the nearby Black Canyon in Tim's purple truck, the roads were a little snowy. Something caught his eye while he was driving. Maybe a rock formation or a bird. Quickly, we were veering towards a ditch. He overcorrected, jerking the steering wheel to the left. Soon, we were doing a 360 in the middle of the highway. He corrected again and we spun another 180 degrees. And then we stopped in the other lane, facing the opposite direction. Luckily, we were on a sleepy highway of Colorado with no other cars coming. In my first couple of years out west, climbing, I had a streak of danger, but I came out of it unscathed. Our friend Josh wasn't so lucky. He had problems with the law, and he was on house arrest at the time, but he would somehow get out to climb. He appreciated those moments so much, and I remember spirited conversations with him about all the places to climb on this great earth. One day, after working his job waiting tables, he was on a ride with a friend on the back of his motorcycle. It was night, and who knows what happened. Maybe they are going too fast or swerving to miss a deer, but they were both thrown off the motorcycle and they were both killed. Jared was devastated. His best friend was dead at 21 years old. And just after attending Josh's funeral, Tim and I set out to Yosemite for the very first time. We soaked our pain in beer. I cried every time I was alone for a week straight for Josh. Tim barely knew him, but he still went to the funeral. That's just the kind of guy Tim is. My state of mind was clouded, lost, and confused. When a young person dies, there's never an answer to why. I thought about bailing on the trip Tim and I had planned to Yosemite. He wanted to go, so we did. I think the best tribute a young man could give to a fallen friend would be to stay on the path that makes you happy. 
I was still figuring out if climbing was what made me happy. Sometimes it did. Other times it freaked me out, made me lose control. But at this point, I was committed to another trip in the purple truck to a place Josh called the promised land in the last email he ever sent me. The last words he ever told me after we climbed a tower in Colorado National Monument, we're survivors, we will survive. The Western United States is a developed land, yet it is also very wild, especially when you come from the Midwest as we did, where there is very little wild land. Mountains and rocks had only been my life for a couple years, a new medium to which I was painting, attempting to become an artist at living, which is what a dirtbag does at his or her best. There we were, further west than we'd ever been, driving into the Yosemite Valley for the first time. The drive is about 16 hours from Gunnison, 20 if Tioga Pass isn't open, or if you make a wrong turn. We must have slept on the highway that night, or maybe Tim just kept driving. He could always put in some incredible hours behind the wheel. Either way, we rolled in just as the sun was coming up. A new day, a new chapter starting, and then there was the presence of Al Capitan, impossible to ignore and I knew I was a long way from home. El Capitan soars so high that it takes the brain some moments to figure out what it's seeing, but there was no mistaking that it was El Cap. 3,000 feet of rock, light golden granite, just sitting there, beaming in the early morning light. Though I know I felt fear just being in its presence, there was something special, something spiritual, to be there in that moment. I was in a daze and probably had that dumb expression that tourists do when they first see El Cap. They stop their cars, sometimes in the middle of the road, and just stare at it, dumbfounded. Immediately, they become hazards to the busy traffic, but they don't care. They just have to stare at El Cap. They don't know why. On the other hand, Tim had that look in his eyes that a climber gets when he sees a place he must get to. An intense focus rose to the surface of his being, and I could sense it. His eyes were wide open and ready for whatever Yosemite could throw our way. He immediately wanted to experience the walls. There would be no delay. He wanted to select a route and start climbing. I simply wanted to survive. In the last year since he'd moved to Colorado, he'd progressed so quickly that there had to be some metaphysical reasons, something beyond him that explained why he was so comfortable on the rock. He'd mastered the basics so quickly that he could float any 510 out there. My duty in these situations was to try to advise Tim to keep safe, to suggest putting in more gear when he was running it out, he was always so zoned in on the rock that sometimes he'd feel so secure in the holds and in the jams that he would simply forget to place gear. When I climbed, I placed as much gear as possible, sometimes too much, and I'm sure he would get frustrated with my slow progress. But we were a team, united by circumstance and friendship, and he was stuck with me. At the start of the trip, Tim would suggest a big climb, and I would come up with excuses why I wasn't ready and suggest something less difficult. This happened over and over again, and at one point, Tim got so frustrated and blurted out that he would maybe he would find another partner. This happened over and over again, and at one point, Tim got frustrated and blurted out that maybe he would just find another partner. But that was just his eagerness to leap into the vertical world of Yosemite and experience its vibration and beauty. Eventually, we had a list of classics that we would do, and each day, we'd line up at the base of one of them and embark upward. After success on a couple classics like Nutcracker and the Central Pillar of Frenzy, I crossed that threshold of fear and entered into obsession. Yosemite was paradise. Everywhere, seemingly perfect walls soared into the heavens. I pondered staying forever. 
The grassy meadows were beautiful too, as was the lazy wide Merced River. Tim and I found some satisfaction climbing together, and though I'm sure he wanted to try harder climbs, he seemed content. Soon our week there was coming to an end, so we picked another big rock to climb. Half Dome. I built up nervousness about Half Dome, like I always did with a long route then. My mind was playing tricks on me. Maybe it's a natural thing to do. While deep in our ancestry we may have been a climbing, tree-dwelling species, climbing big vertical rocks is entirely new for human beings. While Elcap sits right there in the heart of Yosemite Valley, close enough that just about anyone could walk up and touch it, Half Dome sits seven miles away from the valley, close enough to see, but it takes an effort to get to. It has a sheer 2,000-foot vertical face that lies in the shade for most of the day, a golden face with hints of orange and shades of gray. It stands proudly, suggesting an adventure, close to the valley, yet far away. We were intrigued. Snake Dyke was our objective a slab of rock running up the southwest face of Half Dome, skirting the vertical face that stands out from the valley, but still leading one to the summit. 14 miles of hiking round trip and a thousand plus feet of climbing. The way to do this climb is to bust it out in one big day. Get up early, make a light rack, and get her done. We didn't know this, so we decided to hike up the night before and camp out at the base of the route, then climb the route the following day. I was all sorts of nervous because Snake Dyke supposedly had long runouts without gear, We hiked up the winding trail and found a place to camp near the base of the route. Soon, we heard the clinking of climbing gear and the chatter of other people. It was a family of five, a dad and his four kids, ranging from six to 13. They'd just climbed the route and had left some gear at the base that they needed to retrieve. In that moment, I realized the ridiculousness of my fears. If a six-year-old could get up the climb, I probably could too. That night was the most memorable night of my life. We knew we couldn't bring a full camping setup because it would be too heavy, so we went light. As night approached, I crawled into my sleeping bag and looked over to Tim, expecting him to do the same. He decided not to bring a sleeping bag and just stoically looked back at me. There we were, two best friends sleeping on a rock together. We shared a can of beans, the only food we brought for dinner, and then it was silent. We fantasized about food, and up until that moment, I don't think I'd ever appreciated food like that. It was always just there, and now it wasn't. We made a deal that when we got back to Gunnison, we would make a trade from the two places we worked at. We were both dishwashers at neighboring restaurants. Under the stars, we talked about food some more and then silently drifted off, me into a somewhat restless but sheltered sleep, and Tim into his own world of sleeping on a rock with little protection from the elements. He had a hat, a pair of pants, and a fleece, and he didn't complain one bit. Cold ground was our bed that night, and rocks our pillows, and another world within our world opened up. We started with the sun and found our way to the beginning of Snake Dyke, named after a dike formation that the climb leads to. With the presence of the family that had climbed the route the day before, my fears had calmed down, but then they came back as we were roping up at the base of the climb. Climbing offers excellent opportunities to deal with fear. You must face it or back off. The start was pure slab climbing, which involves delicate dancing on the rock, mostly staying on the tips of your feet as you move across the stone. Tim led the first traversing pitch, and then it was my turn. I started off, my fear right there with me following each and every move, reminding me what I was doing. I would always get more nervous when there was air beneath me, the further I was above a bowl or a piece of protection. This is where fear must be managed. You must remain in the moment and delicately balance on the rock. 
I had a moment where I was frozen, scared to make any movement, but I worked through it. I didn't want to become a statue on the rock, and I wanted to end this trip on a good note. Once I reached that second belay, we were at the start of the really easy climbing up the dike. The holds running up the dike were the size of mailboxes. You would have to try to fall off of them. We ran up those dikes, and it was impossible to fall. It was a joyous feeling, and they went on for hundreds of feet. At the top of Half Dome, I thought maybe I was born to climb after all. There's a unique interaction when one is out of the vertical and into a place that tourists inhabit. Half Dome is climbed up the backside by thousands every year, and we immediately left the solitude of climbing and entered a scene with a lot of people who just hiked to the top. When you have a rope and climbing gear, you're suddenly like an animal in a zoo or something, but an animal that can be asked questions. They're all the same. How'd y'all get the rope up there? Now, are the bolts placed in the rock, or do you have to place them as you go? What do you do if you gotta go to the bathroom? I always do my best to politely answer these questions. But then there comes a time when you're sick of it and you just want to get out of there. Getting off Half Dome is a trip because the descent goes down the cables, a series of pipes driven into the rock long ago, which is what the route that the hikers go up and then down. It's third class, mostly low angle, but steep enough that the average person needs some assistance to get up. And most people appreciate the pipes on the way down. We were draped in climbing gear and the tourists kept asking us questions. Did you climb the big face? I wanted to say yes, but no, we just climbed the slab around the corner of it. And then there were the freakouts. Someone would get out of their comfort zone and lose it. A woman yelled at her husband. You didn't tell me about this, Bob. I want to go down. Once a person gets scared, the fear builds and more people get scared. We just wanted to get off this damn thing. Once off the cables at seven miles down, past a marching parade of hikers at their limits, this scene is played out season after season in the crowded wild land that is Yosemite. When it was time to leave Yosemite, I couldn't have been happier. I was pushed to my limit with hiking and climbing, and I hadn't got much sleep over the course of that week. When we got back to the valley floor and packed up the purple truck for the journey back to Colorado, a rush of relief washed over me. Fears were faced and obstacles were overcome. We drove out of there on a high, past El Cap, and out on the highways of the West, back home. Once we were home in Gunnison, Tim and I both decided to move into tents. We'd heard of other climbers doing this, and it made sense to save money. I also took a semester off from college. I was about to earn in-state tuition and figured it would financially make sense to hold off on that diploma for a few months. Originally, Tim and I had planned to camp together, but life was already stretching us apart, as it often does for friends. Most of his work was up north in Crested Butte, and my job was down in Gunnison. We tried to find campsites in between, looking for protected nooks and forested canyons, but ultimately, we camped alone. My piece of real estate was at Hartman's. My possessions consisted of those that could fit in my car. I had distilled life down to something I'd only dreamed of, like Huck Finn was whispering advice on how to live life. From the tent was my view of home, rusty and golden granite boulders and domes, rising 10 to 50 feet from a floor of rolling hills amongst tea-colored sagebrush. A sky so blue, it was often hard to believe that this is the sky we are all living under. Immoderate amounts of wildlife were present. Bunnies hopping, squirrels coming and going in their erratic ways, Bluebirds flying from sagebrush to sagebrush, never losing sight of one another, the occasional deer, coyotes that are heard more than seen, and mountain lions that are rarely heard and even more rarely seen. 
A bear might also pass through this land occasionally, but it would have been a bear that had lost its way, as this was the desert sagebrush land, far from the rivers and forests that a bear needs. My tent was right next to a granite boulder that from one angle looked like a brain, so that's what I called it. I would tell people, I live right next to the brain. It was one of the many boulders in my backyard that I would climb, with razor edges destined to cut climbers' fingers for eternity, which would also cut the rubber on a climber's shoes. This was home, every night. I would sit by a comforting, modest fire, under the stars unseen by many in this modern world, and every morning I would wake up by the sun, leading me to another day of this life. When I woke up, I immediately craved human interaction. I enjoyed the quiet nights inside my head, but it never took me long to miss people. So I'd always end up in a coffee shop or a breakfast joint where I would warm up and talk with whoever I'd see that I knew. When I didn't do that, I would write. I would write for the sake of writing, often scribbling poetry on napkins or scrambling for a sheet of paper wherever I could. I was making peace with my creator. Climbing, school, and friendships had helped to heal the wounds from my meltdown that led me out west, but there was still a lingering pain. I read somewhere once that you never really get over anything. Of course, that statement is poetic, and only in poetry do you find the truth. The truth was that I was still suffering. At night, I talked to God. My notion of a Christian God had long ago faded. Sure, that added up to the list of my American mind that I was a failure. According to the checklist for American success, my waning belief in the Christian God was one of the things that pointed to my failure. Success in America meant study hard, follow the way of the Bible, get married, have kids, be good so you can get into heaven, die, get into heaven, a successful life. I'd argued my point of view before, and though I had the instinct of conviction, I wasn't entirely sure what I believed. I just knew I was rejecting something. For me, that was the problem of me being a hippie. It was all about rejection. I was pushing out all the philosophies, but I was bringing nothing back in. In the still of the night, with the ocean of sky and bright shining stars above, something started coming in. We give something a name, but in reality a name is just what we come up with. There are many languages, many beliefs, but we all live under one sky. The flickering of the fire was my television. The stars were my muse. I wrote poetry, or rather, the poetry wrote itself. It really did. The morning sun delivered another day. I would journey into town. I would work, eat, build friendships, climb, run, and then do it all over again. I was the happiest I'd been in my adult life. I was in love with life, and part of me was able to come to the realization that I could find some purpose within my life. Soon I'd settled on one place as my morning hangout. My car had broken down, and I was entirely reliant on my own two feet and my thumb. I saw others who needed rides sticking their thumbs out hitchhiking, and it seemed to work, so I did the same. Some people who picked me up were surprised that I was living out of a tent with a broken-down car exposed to the elements. I liked that surprise. I had a purpose, and the purpose was to commune with nature, with the rock as my pillow and the world as my home. At this morning hangout, the Firebrand, a coffee shop, morning breakfast joint, and deli, the needs of the Gunnison people were served through multitasking, as a small-town restaurant will do. My scraggly, unshaven, unshowered appearance was hard to ignore, yet I fit in perfectly. One day, the owner finally recognized me as a regular. 
It was the simplest of gestures. She gave me a reusable container for my tea, trusting me with returning it and not throwing it away. The gesture made me feel at home, and I realized that I had arrived home again. Home was not some fixed point. Home was in the heart. That morning, I was home. I scribbled out some poetry on a napkin and fell into a deep meditation of loving simplicity, hospitality, and nature. At home, at my campsite, I was rebuilding my life, in my heart and in my mind. Sure, I was as poor as dirt and technically didn't have a home, but that was perfect. I had no attachment. I was practicing my own religion, my own philosophies, and they were not force-fed to me. I chose them. Later, I would learn a word for my lifestyle. Dirtbagging. But even just writing out that word now seems to compromise the clarity I felt in those days. Then, when all seemed like peace had been restored to my existence, 9-11 happened. I was out on a morning jog, something I'd added to my climbing training, and I was listening to the radio on my Walkman. The song on the radio was interrupted. The United States had been attacked, and the first World Trade Center had fallen. I went into the grocery store and ran into a friend. We're going to war, he said. I gathered with all the other college students in the student union. Everyone was shocked, and there was a major sense of confusion. Sadness was all about. I had lunch with a friend at the Firebrand. We talked about how we were going to war. I thought society was going to shut down, and after lunch I went to the grocery store and absurdly spent the remaining $20 I had on ramen noodles. At work, we watched the TV coverage and spoke to one another with the kind of care humans do after this sort of tragedy. That night, I drank beer with friends, and I fell asleep on someone's floor. September 11th stunned America, and in our remote mountain refuge of Gunnison, we felt it, too. Of course, society did not shut down, and my feeling that it was going to shut down showed how truly little I knew about the world and how it functioned. Our leader at the time, George W. Bush, didn't seem to understand the workings of the world either, showing this by his inarticulate language and flexing of the military muscle in regions that had nothing to do with 9-11. All while he lied and staked out his case for war and set a course that I was saddened and confused by. With all of this going on, I was still determined not to sink into depression and to follow this new path. I'd already set sail on a new journey, and nothing short of death would stop it. This world of machinery and war... It's all too much, isn't it? If there is a God who created us and is watching over us, God surely did not give us this life to fight so much, right? If I were still in Illinois, I know I would have sunk deeper into a darkness, giving the coming war. But I'd already seen the light, and the light came from the sun. And if you were in the right place, nature, at the right time, sunrise or sunset, well, there was a certain beauty that made you believe it. If I were still in Illinois, I knew I would have sunk deeper into a darkness, giving the coming war. But I had already seen the light, and the light came from the sun. And if you were in the right place, nature, at the right time, sunrise or sunset, well, there was a certain beauty to it that made you believe. Believe in what? Hope. And where do you find hope? Bob Dylan asked us a long time ago in his epic poem, Last Thoughts on Woody Guthrie. His answer, his hope in the poetic way that only Dylan can communicate, was in Woody Guthrie as he lay dying in the Brooklyn State Hospital. And it was in the Grand Canyon at sundown. My hope was in the sunrise at Hartman's as it awakened me every morning. It was in Yosemite, a place I truly regarded as a promised land that could save the lost soul. 
Hope was also in the Red Rock Desert of the Colorado Plateau. Hope was in the desert. We called it the desert when in reality Gunnison and my home Hartman's was its own desert. A sagebrush foothills sort of desert. But when you're talking time and place, the is where the emphasis is. And when compared to any other desert in climbing, in the United States, there is only one that stands supreme. I'd had my first trip to the desert in 1999, over Thanksgiving. Caleb had invited me there, and he had given me some basic directions. I spent my first night, cold, sleeping in my car at a quiet, frozen campground along the river. In the morning, I drove more into the canyon and filed a small dirt pullout where I would meet Caleb and his friends. When I hiked up to the wall, I noticed a climber 70 feet up, a perfect crack, unroped. Not wanting to break his concentration, I quietly hiked past him. My naive mind figured that was something normal, free-soloing desert cracks. When I found Caleb and the crew, I did the thing that I always do. I tied into the rope and tried to climb. Crack climbing is a masochistic art, and I fumbled and fought to learn how to insert my fingers, my hands, and my feet into the crack. Figuring this out was the hardest thing in the world. And when I looked around at the others who had practiced it and mastered it, I was 100% sure that I would never reach that level of technique and athleticism. I arrived at the wall with my very basic climbing setup. I wore sweatpants and had a harness and a belay device, climbing shoes and a 50-meter rope. The innocence and lack of knowledge about climbing was oozing from me, mostly the sweatpants and the gawking coming from my face. I knew what to do, though, offer someone a belay, and later I would have a top rope set up. One of the guys in the crew who was British wanted a belay. Climbing is perhaps the best way to make a genuine connection with someone from another country, so I belayed. The climb was fingers in a light socket, a finger crack which finished as some desperate face moves, 60 feet up, and it's one of the only climbs of the buttress you actually can use a 50-meter rope on. He got to the crux, difficult face moves, and hung on a cam. Eventually he figured out the moves, and after a couple more hangs, he set up a top rope. It was my turn to climb, but just before I was about to tie in, the free solo guy emerged out of nowhere. He seemed high on adrenaline and wanted another fix. He eyed our climb, and after confirming we didn't mind that he tried it, he climbed up, unroped. Indian Creek is a crazy place, I thought to myself as I watched the madman climb alongside my blue rope. He was fine for the first 40 feet, and then he started to look shaky. Oh my fucking god, am I going to watch a guy fall to his death during my first hour in Indian Creek, I wondered. My new British friend looked at me, not wanting to say anything, but gravely concerned. Then, like it's nothing, he gave up his free solo attempt, grabbed onto my rope, and then down-climbed it, back to our perch on the ground. He mumbled something about how hard it was, and then disappeared into the day. Fifteen years later, as I write this, I've yet to see another person free solo in Indian Creek. Right, that is episode six of the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast, season one. Listening to that particular story with Indian Creek and some of my other experiences where I barely came out unscathed, I'm reminded by how common you know some of those experiences are. Climbing, you know, I once compared it. I was in a, a class at my alma mater at Western Colorado University, and someone was asking me if I recommended climbing and I 
stated that, you know, recommending climbing was kind of like recommending psychedelic mushrooms or something, you know, they, they work wonders for me and they did some good things, but they also almost killed me and brought me to some of the lowest lows of my life. So, um, it's amazing how mainstream climbing is compared to 1999 and, I think climbing is something that brings joy and um, anything that brings joy to people in this world, we need to share it. Uh, We don't need to keep it for ourselves, but just reflecting on these old stories. And I'm glad I wrote them down five years ago because I don't know if I would would have remembered them the same. The longer time goes by, the more our memory kind of fails us. But that uh, that is episode six. And please support us on our new Patreon account. Like I said, you can do that for as little as a dollar a month. And please subscribe to The Climbing Zine if you're digging the stories here. The Climbing Zine is not just my voice, but it's a lot of other voices from climbers all across the world. So if you like what you're hearing here, be sure to check us out, climbingzine.com. The link in our bio in our Instagram page is a good way to subscribe. You can also just Google that shit. Our music tracks come courtesy of Ketza and Simon Panrucker. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. And for the dirtbags... For the climbers, the climbers that want to be dirtbags, this is the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. I'm Luke Mihal, and we're coming at you from Durango, Colorado. <laughs>